Welcome to Where We Land, a podcast that explores the relationship between Christ, culture, and the church. Hey, this is Stephen Vaughn, and I'm joined by my co-host, Aaron Mansfield. Hey, everyone. And Morgan McClure. What's up, guys? In this episode, we will discuss what informs our faith and specifically how this relates to the way that we worship. You know, what informs our faith conforms our worship. This is part two of a three-part mini-series, so we hope that you will join us for the full conversation in episodes to come. Well, guys, you know, last episode we were discussing this informants of our faith and we discussed specifically emotion, but through the whole thing, we've kind of been using worship as an example right. of how our faith works itself out, right? And so we just kind of wanted to revisit that today. And by doing that, we wanted to kind of re-ask a question that we teased out a little bit in the episode before, what determines the way that we worship? Uh, Morgan, do you have anything for us there on what determines the way that we worship? Yeah, I think it. people mostly pin it to like a preference thing, but really, you know, uh, what we come back to is really it's based on doctrines and, right. and, and church structures and their doctrines that it falls back Which on. Which preference is a big thing today. It's huge. It's it's probably, probably the one thing that I would say most people use to inform uh, <laughs> what they believe about a certain like issue this. is what I like <laughs> and what I don't like. And yet, you know, as we look, though, though back in church history, uh, what we soon and really quickly identify is that what leads to these uh, really fractions either in the Catholic Church or in different Protestant denominations is often rooted in this issue of doctrine, this issue of belief. And we're going to really tease that out later in the episode, I believe. But could you give like a two-sentence definition of doctrine just up front yeah, so I think, our listeners can I think can when we think about doctrine, page. we think about a body of belief. We think about a body of teaching uh, that, of course, you know, gets passed down uh, generation to generation. I think what Paul says, you know, Paul says, is I've been entrusted the gospel, and now he entrusts it to Timothy, and Timothy's to entrust it uh, to faithful men. Paul's really aiming at sound doctrine in that passage. And so it's really this body of teaching. And yet we can look at the body of teaching uh, throughout church history and see how that has uh, really fractioned in different places uh, as as people have maybe wrongly uh, elevated uh, certain things above others. And so one thing, for example, is we're like uh, throwing this out there today. One thing you could think about is like the difference between uh, Protestant and Catholic specifically, and just a very small thing would be um, the way that they're whole service is structured and even the layout of their uh, building. You know, when you think about a Protestant church, which would be kind of like a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian type yeah. of, there's many uh, that came out of that Protestant um, Reformation. But when you think about that, you um, what, what often is pretty much centralized in many of those churches is that there's this central a pulpit in the often the center of the room or the center of the front and uh, and in the Catholic Church, Stephen, you know that's that's different, right? Because yeah, so in the Catholic Church, they normally will have some type of altar um, at some some form. They might not always be the same exact, but they're going to be right. some form. 
And while things, we were discussing this a little earlier, things have changed a little bit. The more modern some things get within these different, especially within the Catholic sects. Church, yes. how they viewed some things. Yeah. But historically, this would have been out of a basis of the pulpit is central because I'm going to come to church to hear God's word spoken to me. Which and was a big thing of the reformers, huge uh, you thing. know, solo scripture and, and yeah, the word of God must be for the people. That's uh, the central and they were like, thing. We need to make the word of God available to the people so they can hear and see the word of God in their own tongue in their mm-hmm. own language. And so when you see this in Protestant churches, the, the centrality of the pulpit is it has that symbolism of, of the, uh, the word of God being central in that church, whereas in a Catholic church, uh, you know, they have a pulpit, but it's kind of off to the side as a yep. lectern, and and the altar is often what is centralized. Yeah, uh, because that, it's that kind of came from comes out of a belief belief that I will speak to God through the priest. Sure. And now, like we said, that might have changed some and so on, but. that historical foundation was still there of, I will go to this place to speak through someone to God. Right, right. So, so that's just a simple illustration as we think about um, kind of what this, how, how, how belief is so important uh, to how it gets worked out in our uh, practice. And so, um, so as we think about that, as we think about doctrine and everything, uh, what we're trying to do in this mini series is talk about the things that inform our faith. And so the first episode, we talked about emotion. Today, we're talking about reason. And in our third episode, we're going to be talking about tradition. And all three of those things are informants of faith. And yet all of them have this underpinning of, of, of Scripture, of truth, and, and, and how we um, understand um, our faith is often rooted in one of those three things. And so, so today we're, we're, we're talking about reason. And, and I would say you guys, as we kind of think about this out of the three of those, out of emotion, reason, and tradition, what do you think is often more, um, valued today? What do you see more prominent today? And out of the three of them, what do you see probably maybe is, is much less? Well, in my personal experience, I think uh, we're talking about out of all three. Yeah, Uh, yeah. I I would believe tradition is is a really big one because it's just what you grow up seeing and that's just what you do. Yeah. Yeah. So in my personal life, reason is the one that I struggle with the most. Okay. Um, It goes back to some of how I was raised. Also, my generation is a generation that I believe can sometimes be very analytical and millennials can be very analytical to a fault at times. If they're not careful, um, they aren't always analytical, but sometimes they can be and it's a danger. Um, but there's also, I believe this newest generation, their hot spot is going to be emotionalism. And that's seen, I mean, I work with teens and children and that is something that commonly is the a root issue of a lot of things is if we can get down to this I'm point. I'm going to tell you how I feel, exactly. and that's going to inform what I want to like, well, about. okay, well, let's talk about that then. Sure. But I would agree with Morgan also to say that much of the church and much of the other things that we see in Christianity, and she's right, even to a point in culture, traditionalism has played a huge role to get us to the point where we are, I believe. Yeah. And I think people in this current generation are starting to push back against that 
in yeah. a heavy way. However, I would agree with you because that's had a huge impact on even. We probably pushed back against the tradition with more emotion. Yeah, and I think we pushed back a little too from. much. I think, and so I would think out of areas. all three of those, the one thing that probably the church today uh, maybe does not think through as as much is that we have a reasoned faith. Yeah, uh, that we, that you know, it's we have a thought through cohesive. Uh, faith. And so if we were going to kind of throw that out there, I just want to kind of throw a question out to you guys. How how do you think doctrine, as we think about, you know, this reason faith, how do you think most people think doctrine is formed? I mean, I know a misconception I had when I just think of the word doctrine. It just rem- makes me think of like all these people coming together in this room, sitting down, going through this big list and deciding like, what the big points are. And it's just like this one group somewhere. You think about like a church council? Yeah, kind of like that. The old church councils (laughs) Or even like a continental congress sort of thing. That's what, you know, as our country I think many people have that type of perception that, you know, that what what we believe as Christians today was because of what a church council decided. Yeah, yeah I think a practical one on like an everyday basis is somebody just goes to like a church website to the statement of faith or find a constitution mm. with something tacked onto it. And they're like, oh, well, that's their statement of faith. So that's doctrine. And they don't ask, though, well, how did they get that? Where did they get that from? You know? Yeah. And... And How did that come to some, be? Some churches I've seen, like, they won't even put scripture with their statement of faith. And it's just like, well, you're shooting yourself in the foot because you're saying you believe that, but you, at the end of the day, you're not saying where you got it from. Right. And yeah. belief is great, but if you don't say where you got the belief from... Cite your sources. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> I, I would agree with that. I would think most people in the church today probably think that doctrine was somehow formed uh, by a church council. And, you know, we think about... But as you look back and you study church history, what you, what you really quickly realize was that what was being discussed in those church councils, yes, was doctrine and issues relating to doctrine, but it was it was really affirming a doctrine that had always been. And what was actually happening was heresy was coming up in the church uh, in different places. And so what was happening was they would have a church council uh, to really affirm, again, that biblical doctrine and to really label heresy what it wasn't being called. And um, yeah, affirmation, not creation. Not creation. It's affirmation of existing doctrine to fight. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so now, though, as we think, you know, Morgan and I were talking about earlier, as we kind of go back to the Protestant versus a Catholic church, you know, what what was happening, what happened out of the Reformation and the Protestant Reformation was this fact that for centuries, the Catholic church had been the standard of Christian belief, of Christian doctrine, of truth. And now as, you know, during that period of the Reformation, as, um, as, as, as now the Word of God becomes more central again uh, in the life of the church, it, it, that whole Reformation in some senses left kind of a, a, a vacuum uh, of, of what had always been filled by the Catholic Church. Yeah. And so then you see even, and I don't want to get into all the weeds on this, but then you start seeing when, you know, in the Protestant circles, so many different type of Protestant denominations popping up because it goes back to this question of a reasoned faith. And so you see church confessions and you see, you know, statements of faith and things that, you know, kind of were kind of foreign, I guess, uh, in that aspect, because what it was, it was, hey, this is a, this is going to be the body of truth that our denomination, that our assembly of churches is going to affirm and what we're going to believe and how we're going to practice. So, you know, as we think about reason, though, and we already had said it, reason sometimes is this pushback, hyper-reason is this pushback against this hyper-emotionalism of the day. Stephen, what, what, I mean, what, how do you see that tension playing out between emotion and reason? And Yeah, so 
I believe we, we said the word, I think, yesterday or today, rationalism, when we were talking about all this. And I believe rationalism, we'll define that here in just a second. I believe, it though, though, that that is the reaction to emotionalism. And I believe specifically, in a sense, hyper-rationalism is the response to what many have seen in hyper-emotionalism. So they say, hey, if you're going to be super feely-touchy and you're going to have no substance, you're going to be a mile wide and an inch deep – we're going to be a mile deep and an inch wide, huh. right? Yeah. And it's this like, let's, when, yes, that's true, but there maybe should be a little bit more balanced instead of reaction. Yeah, to I this, think it comes from a situation. good place and wanting to know mm-hmm. and be really grounded in that, but, you know. Yeah, what starts out, and just like emotion, right? We talked about it. emotion is good, but what always generally starts as good doesn't always finish that way, right? <laughs> and so uh, so when we're talking about rationalism, just so we're all on the same page here, uh, these are going to be cited from uh, Merriam-Webster, Oxford languages, stuff like that, okay? So just so we're on the same page here, that's where the definitions are coming from, and I want us to understand what we're talking about. Uh, we're talking about a belief or theory that opinions and actions should be based on reason and knowledge rather than on religious belief or emotional response. And then it even goes a step further here. It's a reliance on reason as the basis for establishment of religious truth or a theory that reason is in itself a source of knowledge superior to and independent of sense and perceptions. Right. And I, I really think that as we went through there, it just nails it on the head of just saying, look, rational thought is the idea that I will think through something in a logical manner and come to a conclusion. Uh, I will have sources. I will have evidence. I will be rational. I'll be thought through. through. I will be logical. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to throw ration or reason or logic under the bus today. That's not the purpose. But what we are saying is there is this sense of a rationalism, just like emotion we didn't want to throw under the bus, but emotionalism, this idea of where we put it front and center and almost make an idol out of it. The same thing can, the same thing can happen to ration and reason. And we can come and bring it in and we can just say, well, this is independent huh. of all my other senses. This is independent of all these other things. This is the foundation. And what we're, what we're kind of pushing back against a little bit today is like, okay, yes, we want to be rational, but making an idol out of ration, you end up in the same place as hyper-emotionalism. Just right. on a different spectrum. Just on yeah. a different spectrum. <laughs> yeah, they're on the, the other pendulum. End. Yeah, <laughs> on the pendulum of it, yeah. yeah. So, um, but ha- just kind of connecting the dots here, has rationalism invaded the church? Hmm. That's a good question, Morgan. And if so, how? Or if you have seen it, how has it invaded the church? Well, yeah, I think like what you were saying earlier, the reaction to the emotionalism that you see in some um, particular church denominations or even widespread now. Um, I mean, when I was at school, I would meet uh, people who were studying divinity in an attempt to, you know, really push back against that. But they were so deep in their, you know, studies that, it's they were getting lost in the thinking of it and the logic of it instead of you know really applying it. So Some, I think that's yeah. how it invades the church now. I think sometimes we got to guard against. I mean, because I mean, I went to seminary, I graduated with a master of divinity, and yet I can remember going you know to undergraduate and graduate studies, and 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 it, and if you're right, if you're not careful, what can end up happening is faith, the Christian walk, the 
our relationship with God becomes purely academic. It becomes mm-hmm. completely intellectual to where we can have this great divide uh, between what we know about Scripture and yet what we have failed to practice as the yeah. church. You know, we were talking about that Sunday uh, in our church about how over a generation, you know, I think about people in our church who are grandparents. And, and in their lifetime, they have seen the landscape of, of America shift underneath their feet, the, the moral landscape of yeah. our culture. And, and part of that I attribute to, you know, we were talking about the church failing to be salt and light in a culture that needs that, needs that influence, needs that uh, preserving aspect of what salt is. And so you think about that, how, how that's taken place, and um, if, if we're not careful. And I think you can look at the church today. The church knows a lot of things. Yeah. The church knows a lot of things, but they've lost their distinctiveness. They've lost their their distinctiveness in a society. And because of that, they've lost their voice. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, it's, and it's attributed to this thing of, you know, you could have this highly intellectual faith where you know the right thing. You can, you can outline the right doctrine. You know, we were, even Sunday we were talking about, you know, another example would be like in the church of marriage. I mean, the church can give a really good definition of what marriage ought to be. They can walk people through classes of, of this is what a, a, um, a, a blueprint of, of a godly marriage looks like. And yet, though you look at the statistics today, mm-hmm. and marriage in the church is no different than marriage mm-hmm. in the world. That's true. And so so we can have this hyper-rationalistic view of our faith that says, oh, man, look, we were able to parse it out. We were able to define it well, but we really failed to live it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so and. Just, just so we're clear, too, this isn't a new thing. No, it's no. either. No, this has been around um, for a long time. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians to the church at Corinth, and he even brings this up. And in context, in verse 18 of chapter 1, he's talking about how the word of the cross, another way of saying that is the gospel, right? Um, the good news. Uh, and then he goes down in verse 20, he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Uh. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And then verse 22 really just describes it for us. For the Jews demand signs. And we kind of talked about that a little bit yesterday, right? And so you have some people who are demanding this sign, and then I'll believe. And then you have the Greeks, he says, and they demand wisdom, and then they'll believe. Uh, But he says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called. And um, he, he goes on and talks about this and how the power of God and the wisdom of God, right? And so it's this idea that the gospel is not foolish, it's well, it not is. unwise. I mean, it, but, but I'll say it's it is. foolishness right. to man's wisdom, right? Because yeah. he uses God's wisdom right. and this idea that it is not a lack of wisdom; it is a different type of wisdom, right? And we talked yesterday about how God's ways are higher than our ways. God's mm-hmm. God's um, thoughts are higher than our thoughts, right? And it says, if you're just trying to sit down and debate with someone through ration, that's an empty. That's a one-sided thing, right? Well, you think about the, but what Paul's saying is you think about the foolishness of preaching and, you know, the preaching, even in the sense of preaching in the cross. I mean, how, how, I mean, if, if you sit down and just think through that without the underpinnings of what that means, mm-hmm. right? If you don't think about what that means and you just think about what was happening, then you can, you can look at that and say, and, and a culture hears that and they think, they 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 think about a, a crucified savior. They think about it. Just 
for one man dying for all mankind, and and that even that thought without understanding the truth of the gospel is it, it does seem foolish. It's nonsense. Yeah. It does seem that way. But then on the and, flip side, the same guy who's writing this, the Apostle Paul, if you look at some of his discourses with mm-hmm. King Agrippa in Acts right. and some of it in Acts 17 uh, with the uh, at the Areopagus. Are, Areopagus. There it yeah. is. I was going to say Areopagus, but <laughs> Areopagus. Um, you see a very rational, right. thought through, logical individual. So I do not believe that Paul here is saying ration is evil, ration is bad. But what I do see is I believe he's push, pushing back here against what we are kind of calling today this rationalism. This what idea our society of, views wisdom to be. Exactly. Yeah. And Paul's saying God's wisdom is on a different plane mm-hmm. than man's wisdom, you know? Yeah. So, but as we start out, we wanted to define the difference there between uh, those two to understand that you know, rationalism is different than ration, and we do want to be... Reason. Reason, sorry. Reason. <laughs> and we do want to be reasoned. Yes. We, we, it is okay to logically think through right. um, something. And so that brings us to this question, can God and his works always be explained? Hmm. Well, this thought is kind of problematic, especially given a culture that now one of their biggest mantras is, if I can't explain it or prove it, then I can't believe it and I want nothing to do with it. Mm. But, you know, we have to come to this understanding that there is an aspect of mystery to God and his works. Um, I'm just going to throw out a couple of examples here. Just, you know, in a in a quick brush of scripture, you can find it easily. Um, in Deuteronomy 29, 29, um, it says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And then again in Matthew, when the disciples are asking Jesus, you know, signs of the end times and like, you know, when, Lord, are you coming back? Um, and Jesus says, but concerning the day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son, but the father only. Mm. So it's, it's this understanding that, yeah, there are some things that we are just not going to be able to yet think to the point of understanding. And, um, even with the gospel, uh, Paul says in Romans, uh, not to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. And that mm. was the mystery of, you know, God's reconciliation in the Messiah, um, through Jesus. Through, and, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it just, like we were saying, utter nonsense to the wisdom of the world, but you know, I even think of the verse in, is in Isaiah where, um, God says, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Yeah. My ways are higher than your ways. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sometimes we hear that verse and people think, well, man, God's thoughts are just a little higher than mine. And so if I really can think this through, if I really can understand, then I'll, then I'll, get, there. I'll get there. Then I, I can, can get, get there. there and that's not at all what God's saying in that. He's actually saying, I'm completely distinct. I'm completely other. I have a different nature in that aspect. I mean, uh, he's holy. He's 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 different, and so he's distinct from us. And and so we think about that aspect. Then okay, well, well, his his thoughts are so much greater than our thoughts. His his wisdom is so much greater. And it's not this matter of geog- geographical distance, but it's it's one of a differentness. Yeah. Yeah, and so in the face of this otherness that you're describing yeah. and this mystery of faith, um, you know, some have tried to reconcile the tension by taking it to the extreme, like Stephen was saying, and that's where we find ourselves faced with this hyper-reformed theology. Mm. And so, yeah. Stephen, if you want to... Yeah, but so before we talk about hyper-reformed theology, I think that we need to do justice to the subject by starting back in history a little bit okay. and sure. working our way forward. Um, you know... 
We have what we call the Reformation, when the reformers, the people who in that day were, it, it will simplify it and just say they were fed up with the Catholic Church of that day, and they believed differently about many things. One we brought up earlier, sola scriptura, the idea that scripture must be scripture central, alone. Yeah. scripture alone. And uh, that is the way um, to understand God and the his salvation. The five souls of the Reformation, yeah. you know, scripture alone, uh, grace alone, gratia, faith alone, sola Christ gratia, alone. grace, sola um, Christ. So, But it's this idea that they came up with these differences where they were going to stand against the Catholic Church. And so mm-hmm. you have people like Martin Luther, who I think many people would have heard that name probably, probably at, at some point. And uh, he, he kind of is a very central figure in this. You have uh, some people like uh, Zwingli. And uh, then you also have people like uh, John Calvin. And um, these people are fighting and just saying, uh, the Catholic Church has elevated man's opinion above God's, and we are going to return to God's opinion on the matter. Now, they might have done it in some ways that we might not always agree with, okay? And we might have some differences um, depending on who the figure was, but that was their heart cry and that was their heartbeat, I believe. Yeah. And um, John Calvin is a guy who a lot of times, I believe, gets either a really bad rap or, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? Like, he either gets a really bad rap or people just like throw and pin on him all these things. And he kind of becomes this poster boy. But I think if you study history, you have to come away saying, well, maybe it's not the same that I've always heard, right? So here's some common misconceptions. People will say, you know, well, John Calvin believed this when you actually look up in his writings and he didn't believe anything that the person's saying. Or sometimes people even just say, well, John Calvin is the, he is the main foundation and father of Calvinism. But that's actually not necessarily true when you look at history. Uh, Calvin's big um, contribution, per se, was he he wrote this work of uh, theological literature called the Institutes mm-hmm. and this kind of foundational of doctrines that he believed in and teaching. And his goal was to um, he was trying to correct the structure of the church in a biblically founded way. Mm-hmm. And now um, our, some of our listeners might read through some of his stuff and say, well, I don't agree with all that point, but that is his heart cry. Okay. His heart cry is to go through and to see the church restructured in a biblical way, pushing back against much of what the Catholic church had done and kind of in this reforming way in the reformation period. Mm -hmm. And so you see Calvin and, uh, but we also want to understand that Calvin and Calvinism are different. And we're actually going to talk about that in just a second when we discuss his mentee, uh, Beza. But um, we wanted to, right before we did that, we wanted to just state up front that Reformed theology is not what we're talking about here, right? Is that, is, am is I correct, correct in saying that? Uh, Reformed theology is not what we're talking about. Because actually, if you look at what we talked about a couple weeks ago, orthodoxy, right? This idea of a river with banks and different streams. Mm-hmm. Reformed theology in itself would be within orthodoxy. Would you guys agree with that? Definitely. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Yeah, so Reformed theology is there. What we're talking about is more of a hyper-Reformed. And so just like last week, we we weren't necessarily talking about Pentecostalism. We were talking about this hyper-charismatic movement that was born out of some of those things and that had taken some theology, bad theology, and ran with it, right? Mm-hmm. And so... 
when you're looking in history and kind of, I'd just say before you go there yeah. is that hyper Calvinism or you can call it hyper Calvinism or hyper reform theology really takes um, some of those reasoned things that we've been talking about to the end of the spectrum yeah, and uh, really p- taking it to its complete logical end yeah, uh, in, in a sense to where there is not what Morgan was articulating earlier a mystery to the gospel, a mystery to mm-hmm. faith, a mystery to regeneration. There is, it's now completely explained. It's completely defined. It can all be explained. And, um, yeah. and, and so some of those things of taking it to its logical end, how would, what, what do you see, Stephen? Yeah. Where, yeah. So, so going back here a little bit, we were talking about Calvin. He came along, wrote these institutes, this correct teaching. And then Calvin kind of goes off the scene, right? And he dies. And it's actually his mentee, Beza, who would take much of his teaching and would kind of run it through a scholastic um, filter, so to speak, right? He's running it through this scholastic mill almost. And what comes out on the other side is more of what we see today as much of this Calvinism and Reformed theology. And he kind of, he wanted to see what Calvin teased out and the questions that Calvin would ask and some of the theological foundations that Calvin laid. He wanted to build the structure of Calvinism, kind of, and he wanted to take it on. And so another misconception we often have of Calvin is that he came up with um, the the main parts of what we see today in Reformed theology, the tulip, and uh, like different things, like these are different beliefs. I would encourage our listeners to look it up and you can find it, but total depravity of man, unconditional election, limited atonement, things like that, these different belief systems. But that actually didn't even happen with Calvin or Bayes. It happened well, after been a, at a church council yeah. in response to Arminianism. Now, they did pull from the teachings of Calvin on these things. However, when you look at Calvin's teaching, these things were not front and central, so to speak. They were beliefs, but they were not always things that he majored on in um, all of his writings and well, Just to clarify, you're given an example of a, of a point of a of a of a portion of reform theology that was dealing with specifically salvation the doctrine of salvation mm-hmm. and so you know as we think about um, those things of tulip th- those were all uh, Christian doctrines based mm-hmm. back in scripture right and so it's but but what we want to really get at here is talk about hyper reform theology of of this aspect of how how some of that thing how some of those systems of of reason and logical thought uh, in terms of how we approach Scripture, which, which once again, we want to say we're very thankful for. Um, I mean, I think the church is where it's at today, um, and we owe so much to people in that period of the Reformation who took a stand for truth and took a stand, uh, once again, for the, the primacy of God's Word. And, um, and yet what can happen, though, as we kind of go uh, forward in our thinking is, is seeing how Okay, we have these 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 sometimes polar opposites between emotion and, and and reason, and 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 to be able to take away the mystery of faith, to you know that that tension that people aren't comfortable with. We we want to be so we want to explain everything today. We want to we want to make sense of everything today. And so if there's an aspect of our faith that 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 tension, which I think is sometimes a good tension. That's a that's a biblical tension that we should feel about some of those things. But sometimes in, in wanting to solve that tension, what has happened in the aspect of rationalism is that it has been taken kind of to this hyper extreme of reformed theology. And so when you think about taking things to its logical end, you know, we think about things like man has no free will. 
um, questions or things that come up, but like God even is the author and decree of evil. Um, this aspect of determinism, which maybe we'll, we'll parse out here in a second, or, you know, sometimes emphasizing God's power and sovereignty the, to the expense of some of his other attributes, right? Is there other things that you guys can think about in that? I mean, how, how some of that logical end has been taken to its extreme? I think the one about man has no free will. I mean, that I, clearly we, we recognize that that is just something that is not so, you know, and I think that's one of just, I think the biggest examples of the danger of taking it to its end, because then if man has no free will, then why are we here making decisions and doing anything if, you know, it's already set out for us and we're just kind of following a script, you know? Yeah, let's take one like uh, determinism, for instance, yeah. Stephen. I mean, walk us through that. How how does somebody in that type of a hyper-reformed uh, thinking about issues, how, 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 how did they get there? Well, it's just... The whole reason we referenced somebody like Beza was to say that you can take something and run with it to a different logical end than maybe the person before you did. And with hyper-reformed theology, they are taking a theological doctrinal way of thinking of things, and they are running with it to a rationalized scholastic end that the founders never really never necessarily intended, right? And so with something like determinism, you're talking about the idea that Everything is determined and predetermined by the almighty creator of the universe. Now, at the outset, we might not push back too much against that, right? But what happens is when you run this through this scholastic and hyper-reformed way of thinking, you come out on the other side saying, well, if God is going to do something, he's going to do it. So he doesn't need me. I don't need to go and obey the commands of scripture. I don't need to share the gospel. I don't need to do this because everything is determined by God. Everything is orchestrated by God and everything is carried out by God. Mm. And so if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. And whatever's going to come is going to come. Do you know where I think about this? We could see this really clearly would be in the modern missionary movement. And I think about William Carey as, you know, as he goes across, you know, the sea to take the gospel. Um, it, what, what was happening, though, in his day, remember, is he confronted the pastors, many of them in America, that had kind of bought into this type of hyper-reformed theology, yeah. basically told Carey that if God's going to save the heathen, then he's going to do it in whatever means he needs to, and he doesn't need you to do it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Which is, it, which, that is determinism which, at its... Which, at which its, Carey was like, <laughs> which Carey was like, well, then I'm going to take the gospel there anyway. And we, 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 we look at him as this is maybe the founder of this modern missionary movement, but he, he, he once again was, in a sense, he was up against some of this type of hyper-reformed theology. So as we really think about our belief then, what we really need to think about then is how does the Christian understand doctrine? How do, how do, how do we rightly understand Doctrine. Right. And I think that's just coming back to the the point we're really trying to emphasize is that the Christian faith is not mindless and it's not irrational, but it is reasoned and it's cohesive. Um, and it requires what we think, but it's really rooting us back in scripture. And I'm going to share a verse from Colossians 2, or a couple of verses, um, Colossians 2, 6 through 10. Um, and this is really just laying an excellent groundwork and reminding us of where this rational thought, instead of being elevated as the idol here, it, it all comes back to Christ. Um, and it says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, 
abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Mm. So really, I mean... It says it all because, uh, especially the part about philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, because really when you when you make ration and reason the end of all things instead of a means to an end, like you just you come up empty. You can't explain everything away, and you can't you can't reason yourself into understanding. You know the the point of the gospel and everything. But when we're established in Christ as the center of all history and all, you know, means and ends to the gospel and, and salvation. And when Christ is at the center, um, that is where you really find uh, the the logic of it and, you know, your center. I love Colossians here because it, it shows us there in verse six, he says, you've received Christ Jesus, the Lord. So walk in him, rooted and built up in him. And established in the faith. And when the word, when hear that word in Colossians faith is the sense of being objective, Mm -hmm. this objective truth. Um, So just as you were taught, (laughs) just as you were taught. So yeah, Paul's, Paul's articulating here what sound doctrine looks like. This is what doctrine is. It is rooted in him. It's built up in him. It's, it's not these other things that are not according to Christ. So as we think about doctrine in the early church, Morgan, how did the early church uh, really form doctrine? Yeah, so it wasn't just a group of people who decided one day, let's establish this doctrine. It, it really came from Christ, who was fully man and fully God, you know, God incarnate. While he was on earth, his teachings and his character, all of that wrapped up into what he, you know, told his disciples, who then the apostles uh, then spread to others. And mm-hmm. so like Paul to Timothy, it's this um, solid teaching based on the teachings that Christ gave himself in his character. And then that was passed on to the church fathers, further on to the church councils and down through the ages. Yeah. So we come back to this, we come back to this thought here that Jesus and his teachings and who he is uh, becomes for us what doctrine is. That is doctrine. So if we if we take this to, you know, as we think about our statement of faith and we have, you know, oftentimes churches will have a, 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 a number of things listed on their statement of faith of, of their belief about God, their belief about man, their belief about salvation. Um, so if we if we take any of those, for instance, if we think about, for instance, the, the doctrine of man, how who is man? And and um, so, Stephen, as we think about that, how how does Jesus in his teaching inform that doctrine of what we believe about mankind? Well, I mean, John one, Jesus is the word. Uh, the word was in the beginning with God and is God. And so what the written word of God is, the Bible is, is a extension. It's the scriptures for us because Jesus was the living word of God. He right. was the living message of God. And so when Jesus came as a hundred percent God and a hundred percent man, he informs our doctrine and understanding of mankind, how we relate to God, because he is literally the living word, the living message and bodily form of God. And then that is extended on because much of 
scripture is Jesus's teaching, Jesus's life, right? right. And it's a, it's continued on into the written word, the written message of God from beginning to end. Yeah. So even tying back to where we were going earlier, as you were laying out some of those uh, ba- like basis of of uh, reform theology, you know, total depravity of man. Mm-hmm. Once again, that's that's a doctrine rooted in. Uh, this understanding of Scripture, of what Scripture says about mankind, right? Romans. Going back to what we were talking about last <laughs> week, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Yeah. The fact that Jesus came as Savior into this world is because we needed saving, <laughs> right? Because of the brokenness of of us and the sinfulness of us. And so the, the truth of Scripture should become... Um, the truth of Jesus, the truth of his word, uh, becomes for us uh, what doctrine is. And so where you see differences of opinion on doctrine is often because there's a difference of opinion on scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? So how would we conclude today by kind of answering the question of the age, which is, you know, as we think about kind of this cultural mantra of what our society is saying today about this, um, there's a couple of ones I, I'd like us to kind of, you know, parse out and talk about. One is this idea that if I cannot explain it, if I cannot prove it, then I will not believe it. Um, yeah. How do we answer that? Yeah, that one's that one's really, really common right now. Spicy, spicy topic. Um, and, and I think the second one needs to be mentioned because they're in tension with one another. Okay. The second yeah. one is just have faith. Or like take a leap or of just faith. Let go and let God. Yeah. And th- those things are in tension with one another. That's why I say they both need to be mentioned because one is saying, I don't have any faith because I must be able to rationalize every single part. And the other one says, I'm not really big on reason at all, but uh, <laughs> let's have a lot of faith, right? And what we're saying is there's a balance here in scripture. And um, I love what uh, J.D. Greer says. He has a quote when he's describing the gospel, and he says that faith is like looking out at a mountain of evidence the size of Mount Everest and then having a molehill of questions. Mm. And faith is suspending those questions until you meet Jesus. So, Mm. yes, you have ration. You look at this mountain of evidence and rational thought that does support Christianity. But you might still have a question or two. Mm-hmm. Well, faith is suspending that question or two and saying, mm-hmm. okay. And that's one of the best ways I've ever heard it because I believe that as we push back against it, it is saying there is a mountain of evidence, right? And uh, we're going to talk about it here in just a second with somebody like Lee Strobel with the case for Christ, right? Yeah, talk about There's, that a little bit. Yeah, so um, Lee Strobel is, was a journalist and a reporter who had set out to write, like, I guess, the piece of his career, give or take, right? And he was going to disprove the Christianity, but specifically the resurrection of Christ because Christianity is tied back to the resurrection, right? Right. And That's so foundational his, exactly. to belief. And so he, he's like, I'm going to disprove it. So he sets out and he's like, I'm going to disprove Jesus. I'm going to disprove all this stuff. And he goes and he basically researches, looks at evidence. He goes to the Middle East. I mean, he takes like trips. I mean, he spends quite a bit of money. If you look (laughs) at his story, I mean, the guy is going out of his way and he looks through all of this stuff. And at the end of the day, his search for truth and his search for evidence led him to place his faith in Christ. Yeah. And so somebody who sets out in a rationalistic way, a positive here of rational thought, right? A positive of reasoned thought here is somebody like Lee Strobel because he set out to reason, to rationalize what's happening. And that ends up leading him 
to place his faith in Christ. Yeah, and I even think mm. of another example, um, Nabil Qureshi and mm-hmm. his book, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Coming So as Lee Strobel was coming from an atheist perspective, Nabil Qureshi was, you know, a Muslim. And so he sought out to rationalize that Islam, you know, made more sense than Christianity. And he was going to try to find every bit and piece logically from Islam that was going to, you know, defeat Christianity and, you know, make it the lesser religion. But in reality, you know, he was seeking Allah and all the answers, but came to Christ and understanding that the evidence was just, you know, too great to ignore. Right. Mm-hmm. So what we're what we're really wanting folks to come away with today is understanding that the Christian faith is a reasoned faith. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a thought through faith. It's a comprehensive faith as we think about uh, belief system. And so um, when oftentimes I've found this in my own life, when, I, when I'll meet people that want to kind of give that mantra of, well, they'll throw up an example of a miracle in Scripture, or they'll throw up a uh, give an example of, of something in the Old Testament that, that, that was miraculous in the way it happened. It was almost like they, they, they say that to where it's a defense mechanism that I don't have to talk about right. faith. Or, or sometimes it's, it's often one of those things that people, I think, in our society have said today to try and marginalize the church and be like, hey, look, we're in the world of science now, and we're in the aspect of, you know, verifiable, proven mm-hmm. theories. And so, and so if, if this is something like the resurrection that, that we can't you know, experientially, you know, just prove again, then, then we will not believe it. And so we have exactly. marginalized that. Exactly, yeah. Just have faith is the church's defense mechanism. I can't prove it is a cultural me- defense me- mechanism often. Um, not not always, but often those terms can be idolized. I've even heard people mechanism. in like you know society use that phrase of just have faith. Yeah. But what what, what they mean? <laughs> they mean something completely. What they different. mean is totally different. When <laughs> yeah. they say just have faith, they're saying hey, have faith that things will get better. Mm-hmm. Have faith that hey, look at life in a positive way. Good times and positive vibes. That's right. <laughs> that's right. When actual fact, when actual fact, what is your faith in? Mm-hmm. What's your faith in? And if we go back to Scripture and we look at Colossians, we say, well, my faith should be rooted in Christ, Mm -hmm. should be established in Him. And so that becomes the – He becomes for me. Jesus becomes for me um, the reason why I will step out here, the reason why I will do this even though it doesn't seem to make sense because it's what He is calling me to. Mm -hmm. So there is this aspect that I think we need to understand that – that the Christian faith is not mindless, it's not irrational, it's not illogical, but it's a reasoned thought through faith. And if you're listening today and you say, you know what, I've heard about Christianity and I've seen things play out a different way, but you've never really taken the time to actually read Scripture mm-hmm. or actually like what Lee Strollball did or others who have really considered the claims of Christianity, and they've actually taken the time to think through it. Because I think what happens in our day-to-day is people have this gut response that they they don't want to think about faith. Mm. Because if, if, I, if I entertain the thought that I have to think about um, that, that there is a God, there is a creator, and that I live my life in, in relationship to him, then that brings with it an accountability. Right. It brings with it a, a sense of, of one day I'll stand before this creator. One day I'll stand and give an account. And people don't want to talk about that. Mm-hmm. The yeah. people don't want authority. People don't want uh, that aspect of it. And so they say, well, hey, there's a lot of things in scripture that you can't really prove. So it's not worth my time. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I would just encourage people, hey, Take the time 
and and actually research it. I'll, I'll end this way, and then whatever thoughts you guys have. There was a an example when I was um, in uh, college. I had uh, one of the things I had to do one summer was uh, intern at a church. And I can remember we were having this backyard Bible club and there was like kids. I mean, I think about today trying to, you know, have a kid's class for, you know, a small group of preschoolers yeah. or whatever. I mean, we had like four, four-year-olds through 16-year-olds in this club. I mean, it was just like this spread out. We didn't have a lot of kids. There's probably one week we had like 18, I remember. But one day I remember I was teaching and I was teaching this group of younger kids. And there was this older girl, probably 14, 15, 16 years old in the back of the room. And after we got done, she she asked me, she came up to me and she said, says, I had all these questions about different religions. She had all of these questions about, she's like, well, you know, I look at, at, at you know, the Catholics teach this way, and the, that was a Bible church. You're like, they're like, you guys teach this way. And then I look at, you know, even Muslims and different people mm-hmm. like that. And I think about all these different systems of Islam and things. She says, how, she says, how do you know what is true? That's what she said. How do you know what is true? And I thought to myself, man, how do I answer this 16-year-old girl in a, in a, in a way that she understands? And, and the Lord gave me this, and I just said it to her. I said, I said, you need to look at what people do with the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I said, go look at all of those religions. I was like, I encourage you to go study it out and research it. I said, but look at what they do with the person of Jesus. Because to some, Jesus is just a false prophet or he's a good prophet. Uh, to some, he is, he is um, a good man, but he was a good teacher. I said, but, but Christianity believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Christianity believes that, that, that salvation is in him and in him alone. And, and, and so that would be my encouragement to people is mm-hmm. to say, you know, as we think about faith, as we think about how I'm to, you know, live my life in such a way that they would take the time to think about, well, who is Jesus? Because that is the greatest question that, yeah. that you can answer. Yeah, no, most definitely. I would completely agree with that. I would also say too, that as we found our lives upon Christ and his word, um, to remember a quote actually by John Calvin, and he said um, that scripture is like a pair of spectacles. And without them, uh, you are blind and God is blurry. But when you put them on, the blind see. Mm. Yeah. And uh, I just think of Calvin saying that all those years ago, but thinking of scripture in that way and to think through, yes, as a Christian, we are to be rational, thought out, reasoned people. Mm-hmm. But we have to be okay with having a couple of questions. That's, that's faith, right? But if we want to get to that point, it happens through building our life on Jesus Christ, answering the question, what do I do with Jesus? And then going to his word, because his word will literally clear up so many of those questions that we have. And that's often the sad part is that whether they're Christian or not Christian, the people who have so many questions, they aren't willing to do the work and look into God's word and look through the spectacles to see. Yeah. Mm. And I would just say, as you know, a, a personal challenge that I keep coming to and a challenge for our listeners that as you think through your faith and as you grow in the knowledge of Christ and who he is and his teachings, don't let it just be knowledge that you have, but let it be something that transforms you because really that's the point you know the point isn't just to gain more knowledge to say you know the most but it's to be transformed by it and let it be you know overflowing in your heart and in your life so that's it (laughs) that's good well listen we're so glad that you've been with us today and uh we've talked about emotion we've talked about uh reason and our next episode we're going to be talking about tradition 
everyone. Thanks once again for joining us for an episode of Where We Land. We want to let you know that we have a Facebook page. Check it out because this will be our home base for announcements, um, episode previews, videos of past episodes. So to stay up to date and join the community, check out our Facebook page. Also, we want to let you know to find us on Apple Podcasts. And if you like what you're hearing, rate us and review us. That way we can have a broader outreach on Apple and uh, we can just, you know, keep building our community and have more people join us on the journey. Also, uh, you can find us wherever good podcasts are found. So you're not limited in where you can listen. Listen, if there's anything you heard us talk about on the show today that you'd like to know more about, we'd love to hear from you. So send us your thoughts, questions, and feedback by sending us an email at podcast at catawbavalleybc.org. On our next episode, we'll be concluding our mini-series on the informants of faith, talking about tradition. We look forward to seeing you next time.